I like to say that, you know, traditionally we went into it to adopt kids into our life. But really, I think probably a better way to think about it is those kids and those families are adopting us into their life. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging, empowering, and and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Last week, we were grateful to bring Jesse and Doug into the third place to learn of their story of infertility and how it led them down the path of adoption. This week is the second half of that interview, and we go a little bit deeper into the emotions of the adoption story, challenges they continue to face, and what they learned and how they want to share those stories with other people, whether people also going through the adoption process or are experiencing their own stories of infertility. So welcome back, Jesse and Doug. Three years into having adopted, this was probably what, so it was like four years after you started your Mm -hmm. journey and trying Mm -hmm. to have a child, you know, was there ever even any conversation of like, here are resources beyond doctors that can support you in this? Because I, because I see that, you know, how cool that you guys could point the finger and look inward in that point. I think that that's pretty courageous, but not usually easily accessible. And I'm wondering, like, was there ever any conversations of like, here are some other resources outside of those that are getting transactional deals with it that can support you like therapists or other or otherwise other communities? Yeah, I think it's that's a a needed thing, something that I I don't feel like we had easy access to. Um, I think adoption is this incredibly emotional, you know, incredibly complicated thing that is necessary for some people and it works best when both parties involved both the the parent who's placing their child for adoption and the the you know parents who are adopting the child are incredibly healthy and are getting really wise counsel which never happens that that situation i have never heard of that happening maybe maybe sometimes at an agency there's someone who's really been coached and they understand what they're doing really well and and things go really great but I would say the majority of the time, both people are kind of approaching this situation with a sense of desperateness. You know, the person who's wanting to place their child is desperate for some type of relief. They want to, they want to give birth. They don't want to have an abortion and they want to put this baby out in the world and they have no idea what to do. And, and they're really in a low spot. They probably need financial help during the pregnancy. They probably need financial help after the pregnancy. In addition, the couple that's bringing this child in, you know, into their family, most likely they're where we're at and they're like, we really want to grow our family. So there's this sense of desperation for them that this is their opportunity to grow their family. And there's not enough therapeutic, psychological intervention into that world. That that moment is such a tense, emotional moment. I think there needs to be tenfold what there is now in terms of resources on a psychological level for people doing that. You know, I would say this, that there are agencies that that do that. You know, there are agencies that really house the whole process. To me, what's hard about an agency is you're immediately talking $30,000 or $40,000, which is great. 
if you have thirty or forty thousand dollars, but if you're like, well, I want to adopt and I want to do it in a way that's not crazy, you know, crazy expensive. The first thing that goes is all right. of the resources. So it's like, okay, I want to do this in a way that I can actually afford it. I'll do it with no resources, which doesn't seem like a good idea. And it falls upon normally the adopted right. parent to right. be the resource. And it's like, that's just Not really good. hard. And it feels like sometimes when, at least for me, I did this like, okay, what's the easiest way we can do this? And it's like, that, that's a mistake right there. That, that's a flag. And it's like, the more money you have, though, exactly to Doug's point, the more money you have, the more you're going to have help. The birth mom will see, receive therapy and stuff like that. But then for us, we were like, well, I think we can do this. And so we chose the less expensive route, which is hilarious because in the end, we ended up spending way over 30 grand. And it just kind of falls on you then. You become the person that's the resource for the birth mom and birth family. Right. And it's crazy. Yeah, I feel like it's... Uh, you know, similar, like you hire a contractor to, I don't know, build a deck and you're like, I can save so much money and do it by myself. And then, but you don't do the permits right. And you like, and it falls, whatever. And it ends right. up being more expensive. Exactly. And the whole thing is bent sideways. Yeah, at the and end. it doesn't you're even like, look. Why did I do it? Yeah. <laughs> so what does that feel like though? Because even on the least expensive route, this is still like, there's bits and pieces of privilege all throughout this. And there's a reason why, uh, most adopting families are white and most, uh, you know, a lot of adopted children are from other countries or in minority. And there's this financial gap, this reality of adoption yeah, too. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, just from its, you adopt out of your ability to adopt, right? I mean, just if you can adopt, you do adopt. I think there are more families that we don't realize that are adopting um, relatives. I think that is actually oh. something that is not talked about a lot where yeah. a grandma or an, an aunt is taking in, you know, her own, you know, nieces and nephews. And that's happening all the time. And we don't talk about it a lot because it's not glamorous. It doesn't make the news. There's no GoFundMes for it. Um, but it, I think, I think we ought to acknowledge that these people are heroes more. We, we really ought to tell their stories more because there are so many aunties, grandmas out there who have, are raising nine kids or five kids or two kids, whatever right. it is, who are really being the, the support system for people who need unsung it. Unsung hero. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's like there's an unsung hero part there and we know an adoption that is her niece yeah you know what i mean like so there is there is that where it's like and it's great and they have a great relationship and it's all good totally and i think the the adoptions i'll say it like this the adoptions that make the most noise are maybe the more privileged adoptions where it's like you know someone has un essentially unlimited resources and the ability to adopt from somewhere that's not their hometown for us we were only really able to adopt from our hometown. You know, we kind of had entertained the idea of doing something across the country, but we didn't have the money to fly back and forth a, a handful of times. And then on on top of that, even to, to fly back and forth from a different country a handful of times, that's on another level. So I think those adoptions, they do make maybe more noise, um, which makes us pay attention to them more. But I wonder, I don't know this. This is me just speculating. I I bet you that there are more adoptions that are happening within relatives and family members than there are those loud you know we're going to russia to adopt or to china to adopt yeah yeah i, I don't know i could be wrong on that but but i mean you know totally and i mean clearly i i came in with uh, this idea and maybe or maybe not that it's true mm -hmm. you know i think i get to see just a tiny bit of that lens just from my friends like like i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and, and they did the same thing local adoption it was through an agency but 
they had to uncheck all the boxes. There were no, like, could this baby be on drugs or not when it's born? You know, uncheck. Is it matter what race? Uncheck, you know? And so the more boxes you could uncheck that were your must-haves. And again, this feels weird to say because it's like, mm-hmm. we're talking about a human being and we're also talking about uh, transactions. Right. I know. It's yeah. blurry. I know. And I think too, yeah, it just, it feels weird. I remember in our first introductory, when we were thinking about going with a service, they did this awesome um, night where you can come in and just ask a bunch of questions. And that was one of the biggest things. <laughs> one of the biggest things was how can you write off your adoption on your taxes? I was like, okay, what? And then the second <laughs> one was, and then the second one was that, how do you check those boxes, if you will? Or how do you, how do you do that? And I feel like his answer was really brilliant. He's like, what is your capacity? And what can you like, cause it was a lot about like people that were disabled and stuff like that, babies that had special needs and stuff like that. And he kind of was like, what can you handle? What, what are you open to? And then he's like, and then when you check the box, don't visualize that kind of person or whatever. Just know that that's what you're open to. That's your capacity. You know what I mean? That you want. And yeah, it's just this weird, it's, it's just weird. It's like, you have to have like kind of a, like very emotional high IQ to be able to like check those boxes and be like, because in foster care, it gets even worse. Yeah. You're like, or, you know, yeah, it feels like you almost have to separate the, the logic and the emotion part of your yeah. thinking to even <laughs> process. Yeah. So, I always say that, um, I would say that if, if, we really ought to start with the motive, the motivation from the person who is adopting. And I think, I like to say that, you know, traditionally we went into it to adopt kids into our life. But really, I think probably a better way to think about it is those kids and those families are adopting us into their life. Really, that that's probably the better way to think about it is that, you know, they're, these are just babies. You know what I mean? We're, we're really entering their story. They're not entering our story. There's not really much they can do for us at some level. You know, our son, when he came to live with us at 18 months, wasn't like great, now you're going to fulfill all these things in our life. Maybe we put, maybe we wanted him to, but very quickly we realized we're entering your story. You're not, you know, it's more more that. So I think really when that gets mixed around is when you get problems in adoption, where if the, you know, the couple or the, you know, the person adopting is wanting to solve a lot of problems on their end, maybe they're wanting to look like a hero. Maybe they're wanting the baby to look a certain way or, you know, be from a certain country even, or, you know, they want to be the, the family that does X, Y, and Z, adopts internationally, or, or is solving the problems around the world. If, if really, if the motivation is in them to be a certain thing, I think you get a lot of problems, honestly, because then you start to push what, what really is to force your perception of what you want to be on the world. You know, it's like, well, you know, maybe you're trying to adopt from China or something and someone says, well, it's not really working. And you're like, well, I need it to work because I want to be the couple that adopts from China. And it's like, well, we can, but you got to go with this agency and they, you know, aren't super reputable. It's like, fine, then I'll do it because I want to be that. And I want that, you know, but if we flip the script and say, well, what is really out there? Like, let's just start with, with reality and what's in the world and what's going on in my local town and my, my cities in the world. Then I think that the situation is more rightly ordered to where you can solve a problem that's in reality instead of trying to solve a problem that's within you. You know, I don't know if that makes sense or not. And I think, I think it's a good point to like when the family look alike, adoption doesn't come up as much. We have two children that are black 
and we are white. So we walk into the grocery store and it's very obvious. Are you the babysitter? Are you the mom? What's happening? Like, you know what I mean? So it's very obvious that we, you know, have adopted children, but you know, someone that has all the same race goes into a grocery store. It's not something you talk about all the time. It's not something that you, you know, so I wonder too, also if, if there's so many more adoptions that are happen that happen, um, that, you know, because they all look like it's not talked about as much, you know what I mean? But we stick out because we have black children. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what's, what I'm recognizing though, too, is that the process of becoming a parent of any kind is, uh, the, absolute learning opportunity that you have no control. Mm -hmm. And even if you try to manufacture every amount of control possible, um, the child will set you straight and the process to getting the child will set you straight. And so I think that that's cool to know that there's just this synergy in becoming a parent, no matter in what avenue. And I want to even go back to like, so you had that weekend, it was the darkest weekend Clearly, mm-hmm. there was that was another pivotal point for you. And did you then surrender to the ideas that you had or the expectations that you had or what led you to the world of then fostering your second child? Yeah, that was the big turning point for me. I was like, I have to get my button therapy and I need, I already was, but I was like, I need to do some work. I need to do some work. So we probably took six to eight months of just not talking about it really at all and just enjoying our son. And that was really great. Um, he's so down to do anything, you know what I mean? So he's just fun to bring places like Target and Disneyland and all those things. We live in Southern California, so we were privileged enough to have Disneyland passes. And so that was a really sweet, that was a really sweet time for me to, um, just be, a mom to him and really focus on him. And so in therapy, I will never forget my therapist asked me, cause at this point I knew something was up, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was. And I'll never forget. She said, Jesse, why does it have to be an infant? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm solving my infertility. Holy shit. Like it was like, Oh my God, it's me. It's me. Like th- I'm trying to solve something in me. And so then like, started doing the work of really grieving that. And what was helpful for me was I used that name Ruby that I'd had to kind of my grief. So I, that was really helpful for me to, when I thought about my infertility to really think about her and who she could have become and all those things. And that was, that was really helpful for me to really just grieve and let that go and kind of not let it go. Cause it's obviously still a part of me, but just really kind of heal from that. And so I was able to turn and focus my eyes and be like, what what could we handle and what would be good for our family and what um what if i was taking all that aside and like the infant and it looking like me and all those other things and pushing putting that over here what what would be best for our what would be best for our family and i'll never forget doug sitting on the couch we were sitting on the couch and i said you know what i've been thinking about i think a 7 year old girl would be awesome I think she would, I think it would just fit in really well with our family. And I think that, um, our son would, you know, have someone closer in age. And I thought, Doug, well, I mean, what did you think? You probably like, I was shocked. It was like a seven year old girl. That's not, I've never heard her say that. Or yeah, it was always like, I want to have a baby. I want to have a baby. I want to have an infant baby, an infant baby. I want to be in the hospital room. And yeah. And then it was like a seven year old girl. I mean, I agreed. I was like, that actually would be really great. Um, yeah. but wow, I was surprised. Yeah. And I know it sounds like we're picking again. Like it's like, oh, we're going to do that one. It's like, it wasn't that. It was just like, I think I'm open to this now. And I, (laughs) 
in the beginning of this journey, if I would have said that I would have brought in an eight-year-old girl into our home, I would have been like, what? No, there is no way. Just because I was so one-track mind. So we did the whole fostering process. And well, that was before then. It was kind of, but even in the fostering process, I had a little bit of that still that infant thing of just like, oh, I want an infant baby. Then actually we got matched with an infant baby. And our son was five and a half at the time. And we had an infant for three days living in our home. And my life was in fifth gear and it went down to first gear. And I was like, what is this bomb that is happening to our lives? Like what in the hell? So it kind of was like eye-opening to me. And and it was so hard because our son was so used to this lifestyle of being able to go places and all this stuff. And I just really felt this like, oh, this is not necessarily the greatest fit. Not that the baby was awesome. I mean, he, he, it was great. But it was just like, oh, I don't know if that was what I want anymore. That desire, that like kind of thing was like, I don't know if it has to be an infant. And then I realized that they don't give you anything, you know, when they're infants. Hello. So it's not solving anything for me. If anything, it's like, you know, just hard. So that was a big turning point for me. And then, and then saying to Doug, I think we want a seven-year-old girl. I think a seven-year-old girl would be great. Um, and a week later, got a phone call. Hey, we know this seven-year-old girl. Wow, She's really, really great. I think you should meet her. And I was like, when Doug called me, I said, did you just say seven? I was like, did you say exactly what I spoke out into the world? Like, no, 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 no. And so speaking into existence. Yeah, I literally, it was like, but both, both all times. Right. But it really, I felt like actually came out of a humble place. Like I feel like before right. it was like, it has to be an infant. And this was just like, I think that would be really great. I think that's what our capacity could handle. And I think that would be really good for our son to have someone be close in age. And I think we can handle her, their trauma. That's honestly another big thing is like when you go into this, you know, you need to know that they're going to have some right. issues. And so I was like, and I think, I, I think we could do it. I think we could do it. And boom. I think for me, it was this realization that I wanted to flip the scenario that there's for us, it was like this group of people that were all, again, that sounds bad, but it, it felt like to me competing to adopt the infants from people who were giving their babies up for adoption in, in the private adoption world. It felt like there were only so many babies being born and you had to market yourself well to get in there. And I, I didn't like that. So I thought, well, this is insane. Let's look at foster care. And what I found and what we found was the exact opposite. There are over, you know, there's 30 or 40,000 kids in LA County alone in the foster system and within that, they're not all available for adoption. But there's it, what it means is there's tens of thousands of kids who right now need a place to go. And I thought this is insane. Why are we Why are we doing the opposite, where we're competing with other people who all want to have a baby so that we can get in front of a birth mom and maybe have this scenario work when there are you know five, six, seven year olds over here just waiting and in need of so much help. And these foster agencies and these counties are just begging and waiting for families to show up and sign up. I thought, how, how clueless do we have to be to avoid the, the real need? You know, it, it says more about me wanting to force the adoption than to go with foster care. So that, that immediately made us start to think, I think we asked ourselves, where's the real need? And we just kept coming back to, well, there's the, the the need is that there are foster kids who need somewhere to go, not even a permanent place, but they just need somewhere to go. And a lot of times, about 50% of the time, that ends up in adoption. So that just drew us into the foster world so quickly. Um, and from there, just like Jesse said, it was like 
door opened after door opened after door opened. And mm-hmm. then, you know, now we have, a, a, the, you know, now she's nine, a nine-year-old living with us. And it's great. And there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot more to say about that. But that's really what brought us into that world. And I think, too, the first meeting we had in the foster agency when they said 50% of the time they will be reunified with their birth family. I was like, oh, I need to do some work. You know what I mean? Like, I need to be able to go into this being like, I better have my intentions be good because it's not about me. You know what I mean? And one of the most powerful things I ever heard, and I was actually on a run and I was listening to a podcast on adoption and Enneagram because I'm obsessed with the Enneagram. And I thought adoption Enneagram is my jam. (laughs) And so I was listening and she said something so profound to anyone that has an adoptive family. She said, adoption is standing on the gravestone of another family. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was running and I stopped. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Like we don't need to cheer for them to not be better. We need to cheer for them. I mean, in some situations it's not good and it's not good for them to go back. But instead of like coming into it for me, what it can, what can it can do for me? It's like exactly what Doug says, we're a part of their story. You know what I mean? And they're standing on their family that's being broken up. And you know, that's hard and that's really that's really hard. And so I'm I I feel like hearing that too was really helpful for me to be like I need to make sure that my my motivations are pure going into this. Yeah. So many points in your story speak of trauma, 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 which mm-hmm. also, to me, it's almost like it set you up for the capacity to handle some trauma. Like the idea that a foster child is 50-50 to go back to their family, that feels traumatic. Um, but yes. you've experienced so much trauma. It's like, you know what? We can handle this now. I don't know. Is that accurate or... Yeah, I think so. It's traumatic for everyone. It's traumatic for the the child who's right. you know figuring out where right. they're going to live, and it's traumatic when you're wanting to do an adoption. You're wanting kids to stay with you forever. It's it's it is more difficult to say this might not work. It might work out. Um, but yeah, I, it took us a really long time, and I, I don't even know if there's a way to shortcut it. I hopefully there is for some people, but it took us a really long time to get to that place where we realized. This is for the children that we're bringing into our home. It's not for us. And once that shift starts to happen, you invest more freely. You know that it might hurt if they have to leave, but that's part of the game. You know, that's part of that's part of it is that I'm going to get really attached and if this doesn't work out and you go to live somewhere else, you go back home, it's going to hurt really bad and that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay because I'm not making you fulfill something within me. Mm-hmm. That's something mm-hmm. I need to deal with as an adult. That's something that I need to process with that, you know, Jesse and I weren't able to have kids of our own. I need to deal with that on myself. Mm-hmm. No child is going to be able to. Yeah. They're completely separate. It's a issues. separate issue. No child is going to be able to fix that. Once, once that really sunk in, I was able to fully invest with the kids that came to live with me, regardless of what happens to them, regardless of, because eventually someday they're going to go live somewhere else and hopefully live a life. They know they're going to stay at home forever. So it's something that we're all going to have to deal with. We're just forced to deal with it when they're at a really young age, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's kind of like that uh, empty nester feeling or whatever. You're having like a groundhog day with it, with empty nesting feeling. (laughs) Totally. And like, like, I mean, so when I think of, you know, my perspective or very little understanding of adoption versus fostering, there's 
sort of a, an end date or a potential end date sooner with fostering? Like, so is it you, but you've now had your foster uh, daughter for two years, you know, what is, I just, I think I need a little bit more context as to like, what are the agreements that the variants of agreements with fostering? <laughs> Sadly, there's no agreements with fostering. It's all, Got it. it's all has to do with the, what the state is doing. So we're not really the, we're not the guardians. When you are a foster parent, you're not the guardians of the child, the, the, the child is in, is a, yeah, a ward of the, of the state. So the state really in the County is the person Ooh. who's deciding everything. So it depends on the case and it depends on the situation, but generally uh, a child that comes into the system is on a, on some type of plan. And the plan is either a reunification plan where they're going to go back to where they were, or the plan is a permanency plan that wherever they're at now is going to become a permanent uh, situation. And there are kids, gosh, all in the mix of all of that. It's kind of a, a, a scale you can be on and it slides all around. The situation that we're in is a more of a permanency situation where things are going to be, you know, more permanent. And that's why she's been there for a long time. She possibly will stay there forever. Um, but, but about half of those cases are, are on the reunification plan. Yeah. So and there's really no agreement to it. It's just kind of taking to see where the kids are at. And when I'm talking, when I talked about earlier, like not rooting against the birth family, it's like half the time that's on them. If they're going to a reunification plan, they are, they could be trying to get sober. They could be, you know, and, and almost like you want to naturally be like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. So they can stay with me. But it's like, you can't like that could be, you know, that's their family and they and you want to root for them, you know, instead of against them. So if you're going into with your own intentions of me, 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 then probably going to have a hard time. <laughs> and it still flares up. I'm not saying that we're perfect at this. It still flares up. Absolutely. Like she does our foster placement doesn't call us mom and dad. And so it doesn't bother me when we're at home just because we're so used to it. But sometimes I feel like in, you know, the grocery store getting looks and stuff like that, like it can still ping me a little bit to be like, Right. We're just a different, it's just a different thing. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's interesting. So both of your children are, are black. What about uh -huh. the cultural differences? Like, I, I mean, I know an obvious one. Well, actually, when I first learned about it, it wasn't obvious, like that you had to wash hair differently. <laughs> like, yeah. what are the other cultural things like that you had to learn or how did you step into realizing that there's different cultures in the mix? Yeah, it's a huge question and a huge um, issue that I think every couple who is adopting has to start to process that the children you bring into your home, the children that you're going to raise may look differently than you, may have a different culture than you, um, may have different routines, uh, different histories. I think what what you have to do is it's a very difficult thing to do, but I think you have to adopt not only the person that you're adopting, the child that you're adopting, but also adopt the culture, the rituals, the uh, style, the th you know, the cultural nuances, all of that type of stuff. You have to adopt it and bring it into your life and really be all about it without identifying to it personally, if that makes sense. Like right. we are not black by proxy because our kids are black. And it's, you're almost tempted to be that way. Be like, see, you know, we know what it's like. It's like, we don't know what it's like, you know? Um, yeah. but we have to adopt everything that is blackness into our world. Like it has to be part of what we do without us being it, yeah. which is a difficult thing. And I think the only way you can do that is to surround yourself with more 
things that are of black culture, more black people, more black friends, um, talk about it more, understand it more, read more. So you really have to dive into it without identifying as it personally, which is a really hard thing to do. To be perfectly honest, it's really difficult. And my short answer of it is, is humility. That's Mm. what I would say. It takes a lot of humility. Humility, walking into it, humility, and then educate yourself, especially with hair. I feel like that was the biggest thing because I'm a hairdresser. So let that sink in a little bit. So it's like, I was like, (laughs) I can do this. I got this. This is the And then I'm like, oh no, I can't. I I can't do this. And I don't want it to look like his white mom did it either. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be judged. So for me, it was humility. It was just like, I'm going to educate myself and I want to do this. And we talk about race all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing too. Um, because we had our first kind of little like remark, you know, to our, our daughter that, you know, about how her having brown skin. And it was, it was, a little bit laced in racism and she came home and she told us about it and she cried and we had a great conversation and it was awesome. And I, and after she went to bed, I looked at Doug and I said, that's because we talk about it all the time that we like that. She felt comfortable to have this happen to her and for her to feel comfortable to come up to us, her white parents and be like, I didn't like that. I didn't like, and it felt like she was like alluding because I have brown skin and I was like, and I wanted to be like, she did. Okay. Like, (laughs) That was not right. But it was like, how cool that she came right to us and she talked to us about it. And then even cooler was we were at this one shop and someone kind of gave a racist remark about about someone being Asian. Oh, wow. And both of my kids caught it. Both of my kids caught it. I said, because we drove away and I went, was there anything about what happened in that store made you a little uncomfortable? And they both went, yes. Why did they have to describe that person like that? And I was like, bing, like... Yes, it's because we talk about it. We're open about it. You know what I mean? So I think that's very important is especially for white parents, you that have different um, culture children is that you, you want to like tiptoe around it and it's awkward. It's like, no, if anything, we've experienced the opposite. Yeah. Just jump into it. Is just jump into it with humility, but jump into it and just talk about it, bring it up because they're doing it. I mean, she's, she's gotten, why do your parents have white skin and you have brown skin? Like they've get, they've gotten that all the time. And our son is just so used to it that he's just like, it's because I'm adopted next. <laughs> like he's just so, but it's like how awesome that he knows exactly what to say and giving your kids language before those questions yeah. happen. I think that's something important too, is if you have, if that's just something that you guys talk about all the time, that our son knows exactly what to say. When someone says, why, why are your parents white and you have brown skin? Why is that? And it's like, he can very easily just be like, oh, it's because I'm adopted. And they're like, oh, anyway, like, and it's just, but that's because we've educated him to know what to say. Yeah. So so the humility and then embracing that curiosity to where you became a learner of lots of cultures, you know, or learners of a culture. And then that was probably... I would imagine it would be fun too, like to learn so much yeah. about other people and and things like that. Yeah, yeah it was it, fun and um, eye opening, mm-hmm. and actually, it's in some ways, uh, traumatic and sad to for us. Ooh. You know, our kids being our kids being African American, they're they're it's their interesting heritage is that we really d- dove into you know who they are and their backgrounds, but then kind of researching and learning and just learning so much and. We thought we were, I thought I always was aware of America's history and, and our, and the history of race and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's just this process of learning, like, oh, I didn't know anything. And oh, oh, there's so much more to learn. And 
and you know opening my eyes to that has really been has been shocking and and good good for me as a person uh, and fun and cool and really interesting but also painful yeah, and yeah mm-hmm. um yeah really eye opening yeah i mean that's the the humility and the humbling like i can relate it to having employed a lot of spanish speaking people and that the best thing that you can do is just try to speak their language right it's like you don't have to do it perfectly but at least try and don't just assume that they're going to you know assimilate to your language and i think that you guys are a testament to that in the relationship with your your child having your children having different skin color mm-hmm. and one thing that i so you know to give our listeners a little bit of background but Jesse and i first spoke because one of my friends is is going through ivf right now and i was trying to find resources to send her something because i think that so often, you know, the point of the third place is that we're trying to give people the language and and the ability to try the language on for size to meet people where they're at so that they can not necessarily keep saying, you know, I have no words. I don't know how to support right. you because I can't I can only sympathize and I can't empathize. And that just only goes so far. And this is where it brings us to the work that you do now with Uniquely Knitted and I think is so powerful because it's a, you know, I want you to sort of tell us what Uniquely Knitted is, but also how it is an extension of how people can participate in other people's journey beyond saying I have no words. I love that. Yeah. Well, our biggest thing with our box that you were alluding to is where anyone can send anybody a gift box. And our biggest thing with our with our box is, is it's saying more than a gift. It's more than a gift. You know what I mean? It's giving you... A, a way to love these people where they're at. Yeah, I think, you know, Uniquely Knitted, the nonprofit that we run was founded and started because of our own personal journey and our own desire to add more resources to the mix for people who are going through such a difficult, traumatic, life-changing season for us. You know, for us as a couple, it really changed who we were. You know, we're doing stuff now that we never thought we would have done adoption, foster care, that that was never part of our game plan in the beginning. And we've changed as people. So we just thought these, there's a lot of traumatic things that happen during infertility. We want to uh, provide more resources. So that was our goal was to help heal some of the trauma that happens within infertility and then really end a lot of the isolation that's associated with it. You know, for me going through infertility as this, you know, as a guy, I was like, I didn't want to talk about it. Was stressful. Was overwhelming. I just wanted it to be over. I wanted it to figure it out, move on. I felt like it was an isolating experience for me. So for us, the box that you're talking about is an opportunity to yeah send more than a gift and say, here is here is an organization that I that I know of and I like that I'm sent you this gift through. So it's like, look, I understand and I see a little bit of how difficult this is for you, and I want to show that I'm a safe person and I'm there for you. And then we also have um, a building resilience program where we, um, it's a six week course that you take and then a weekly Zoom call where we kind of walk you through it. And it basically is educating these people to be more resilient in their infertility journey. And it's been really, really cool. We're in our first one right now and it's been just so good. So, so, so good. So healing. And I think different than a support group. Yeah. We're not just like going to sit there and listen to each other's stories, which our stories are good. And that's all. So it's like all good. Um, but it's, it's really giving you tools to, to help you in your infertility journey. I feel like we have a lifeline, like infertility can feel like you're drowning in a pool and we have something we can throw out and be like, we'll help you. Come on. Yeah. Let's help you. So it's been really, really cool. 
Yeah, to me, that's sort of like the the first stage is just finding out that you're not alone and that there are so many variances that that you can connect with, find your niche tribe. But then to me, it sounds like you took it to the next step where it's like, here's the engagement that you can have with yourself and with your community in order to really then embody that and feel supported. Because I mean, it goes back to where we started this conversation where there was just such an absence of resources in the side that could have potentially been probably not prevented. It wouldn't absolve the roller coaster that you had. But to me, I feel like it would maybe soften the peaks and the valleys a little bit. Totally. Totally. And that's why exactly what you just said. We've really adopted and loved this idea of resilience and building resilience for, I think, for uh, people going through infertility, people going through adoption, foster care. There's this idea of, I just got to survive this season. Just got to survive. You know, if I just make it through and survive... It's, it's, I think, a flawed idea a little bit because at the end, yes, you've survived and you've become a survivor, but you know, there's a lot of survivors who are traumatized, who don't feel healthy and don't feel happy for a very long time. And I think a better way of thinking about it is I want to become resilient, not just survive, but become resilient and learn to, when I get knocked down, to get back up by the help of the community around me and the people and the skills that I have to build myself back up emotionally, physically, mentally, to be able to get back up so that at the end of this, I'm a more resilient person, not just a survivor. Yeah. And I think uh, like our last step in our program is ownership. It's like taking ownership of your story. And if I would have had that, that would have saved me from a lot of heartache because I think I could have been more resilient going into our adoption path and you know, had a lot of healing. So yeah, I, yeah, I just think it's something that a lot of people need. Even if you don't just get, end up getting pregnant, any avenue that you go down, it's helpful. Right. Well, what an amazing resource. What a just unbelievable journey that has led you to such resilience on your own. And then yeah, to take that experience and extend it as a life preserver to this whole community is just a gift. So Thank you for that. For those that are looking for more information or how they can plug in, where can they find you? On our Instagram is uniquely knitted. Oh, wait. Handle. How do you say handle? Just handle. Handle. Uniquely knitted. <laughs> and then our website is uniquely knitted.org. So. Yep. Uniquely knitted. And the reason, again, why it's called uniquely knitted is all of our stories are so unique. Every, I've never heard a single adoption or foster care or especially infertility journey that's the same they're all so unique and really the uniqueness of the pain that we're going through is what brings us together so that's why it's called uniquely knitted i love that i love that man i i can't tell you how many times i got the chills as you guys spoke i think mostly just from uh i feel honored to bring you on but also to um witness your partnership and truly see resilience in action and it's just been such a treat to have you guys and i think that um our our listeners are gonna be equally as moved by your story and the work that you do now so thank Thank you you so much it's it's so nice to share your story we're so grateful for you guys listening and for your listeners and yeah the ability to let you into the crazy journey we've had (laughs) it's one way to put it yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) crazy it's crazy (laughs) thanks again guys be well third place podcast is produced by podcast publishing house if you like what you're hearing follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms 
Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Third Place Podcast.